Well, to begin our time, I want to share uh, a story of an experience. Victoria and I were recently watching the evening news, and they were reporting on a fire that was burning out of control here in Southern California. And it was on path to destroy uh, a, a number of homes. And so there were policemen and fire officials who were going door to door and knocking and letting people know as if the smoke and the smoldering flames around them wasn't enough cue for them to evacuate, that the fire is coming and you need to get out. Now, by law, there was no way that the, the police or the fire officials could force someone to leave. And there was a news anchor who was actually there interviewing all the residents in the path of the fire, asking them all the same question. Are you willing to leave? Are you willing to leave? This was a pretty important question, and it demanded an immediate response. And what I recall, and Victoria remembers this too, was the man that they interviewed who was adamant about not leaving. He said that you know, this had been his home for nearly 30 years, and everything that he has ever worked for was right there. And he was not going to leave. How this man decided to answer this question that he was asked had huge implications. Huge implications. And I share this with you because the example that we're going to see in Mark chapter 8, actually the question that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to ask his disciples has huge implications as well. It is a monumental moment in the Gospel of Mark. And the Lord has brought them to a point where their answer to this question alone will change the course of human history. What question does he ask them? What bearing and connection does their answer have on your life and mine? How have you answered this question before the Lord? Let's tackle the text to find out. If you haven't turned there already, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 27 through 30 as these four verses will be the focus of our study today. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and the New American Standard reads as follows. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one 
about him. Our recent sermons in the Gospel of Mark have paved the way to this monumental moment with the Lord where his disciples are going to openly confess Christ clearly. And our passage reveals two vital insights so that you and I also confess Christ clearly. And it's important that we don't lose sight of the immediate context where Jesus has repeatedly challenged their hearts of unbelief and their spiritual blindness. Two times he has already asked them direct questions as to whether or not they can spiritually see. And you can look with me in Mark 8, 17. After warning them of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians, he asks, do you not yet see or understand? And then he follows it with a second question in verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? Both of these questions preclude the healing of a blind man, which we got to study a couple Sundays ago. And I, I wish, and this is just personal preference, I wish that there, there weren't a couple Sundays in between the messages. There would have been a little bit more continuity. But that's okay. We're going to be able to still see the connections. We talked about the significance of Jesus healing this blind man in stages. How he took him from being blind to, the, to giving him partial sight and then going on to give him perfect or clear sight. We learned that this reflected a spiritual progression that was seen in the life of the disciples. That this two-stage miracle reflects something. And I'm eager to share that I learned a little bit more about uh, that, that, uh, that passage this week. I want to uh, humble myself and say I, I'm, I'm a work in progress and I'm learning as I go through the Gospel of Mark. And so sometimes there's things that I think that I see or what the Lord would have us know and understand. And then um, it's like, wait a minute, I don't know that I necessarily got that exactly right. And the continued study allows me to have a little bit more clarity and to see a little bit more clearly, which when you're studying a blind man, uh, certainly the, you, can, you, you can see the irony in that. Well, the title of our message, you can see in your bulletin, is Confess Christ Clearly. And again, our passage reveals two vital insights so that you and I do just that. Let's dive into our text to see the significance of our study and what it can reveal to us. And the first vital insight is this. Don't be fooled by public perception. And here we're going to consider the Lord's probing question followed by the disciples' public perception. And there's an immediate context that serves as a backdrop that will really bless us to understand. Look at the beginning of verse 27. It says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Let's stop here for a moment. Our setting today is in a region and there were a, a number of cities in this area of Caesarea Philippi. And the Lord is with his disciples. He's approximately 120 miles north of Jerusalem, 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, at the upper source of the Jordan near the base of Mount Hermon. Those familiar with the ancient Near East geography. It was pr uh, predominantly a Gentile area. 
And again, it's, it's 25 miles north of Bethsaida, and it's where Jesus had just healed the blind man that we talked about in Mark chapter 8, 22 through 26. It's the northern limit um, and pushes the northern borders of our Lord's public ministry. And it's here in this spot where the Lord, to, he was determined to ask them a very important question. But the, the, the question can be asked, why here? And, and why now? And you're going to find this interesting. This was an extremely beautiful area geographically. But it was also known for some pretty ugly pagan idolatry. In ancient times, this region had been called Belinus because it had been the center of Baal worship. And Baal was known as the Phoenician god of fertility and nature. And later, the name changed to Paneus. So it goes from uh, Belinus to Paneus. And Paneus, um, the reason why it was renamed was because According to Greek mythology, the Greek god Pan, who was part god, or excuse me, part man, part goat, okay? You, those who are familiar with Greek mythology, you may have even seen pictures of Pan in the past. He was half goat, half man. And he was believed to be the, the guardian of flocks and nature. And according to tradition, Pan lived in a, a cave uh, in, in the region of Caesarea Philippi. The modern name of this ancient city is Baneas, which is from the form of Paneas. I found it interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ chose this setting because we know that Jesus Christ is both fully God and both fully man, right? We, we see that. And, and on the backdrop of the pagan idolatry, he chooses a place to, to reveal in, in, in a greater and fuller revelation of who he is with this pagan backdrop where Pan is associated with, part goat, part man. Add to this, Caesarea Philippi also contained a gleaming marble temple built by Herod Philip to honor Caesar, the Roman emperor. And our church family, most of our church family know that the, the, the Romans viewed Caesar as a god. One commentator shared, the citizens of this city were required to enter this temple at least once per year, place a pinch of incense on a burning altar, and proclaim, Caesar is Lord. That's sickening, right? And we can only imagine if you lived like in the district of Washington, D.C., and you had to go and take a pinch of incest, incense, not incest, um, and, and it's equally disturbing, actually, and um, a pinch of incense and put it on the altar and declare our, our U.S. president as Lord. I think that, that, that would nauseate most of us. And again, this backdrop is fascinating as well because Jesus, Jesus recently warned the disciples about the leaven of Herod in Mark 8.15, which we learned would be a temptation for the disciples of gaining uh, political influence and power. 
And it was going to be a temptation that they were vulnerable to. And so it's here in this region devoted to the worship of idols and man-made gods, which was also very hostile to Judaism, that Jesus chose as the place to make a fuller revelation of himself to his disciples. And he begins by asking his probing question. Look at the middle of verse 27. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? Now, in Judaism, typically, it would be the students coming to a rabbi to ask him the questions, not the reverse. So Jesus, who's not your typical rabbi, who shatters the rabbinical mold, if you will, he comes to them and he asks them and he wants to hear from their perspective, what is the consensus saying? Of course, he already knows the answer, but he's fulfilling a unique purpose by asking the question in stages. Listen to what James Edwards shares. Jesus puts the question to the disciples in two stages. What others say in verse 28, and what the disciples themselves say in verse 29. There is a psychological astuteness in intensifying the questions. For it is usually less daunting to venture the opinions of others than to risk declaring your own thoughts. What is Edwards ultimately saying? Jesus understood the way that people think. He understood uh, the, the, the pressure, peer pressure specifically. And so what he's trying to do is strategically take some of the pressure off by asking them, hey, who do people say that I am? And in all three synoptic gospel accounts, the disciples answer the exact same way. And this takes us to the disciples' public perception in verse 28. They told him, saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And the first thing that we can notice here is that all the answers are positive in nature. No one is saying um, Baal or Pan or Beelzebul, right? The, and again, this isn't what Jesus is asking for. He's not asking what his enemies are saying about him. He's talking about the people in general. Besides, the, the disciples have already been there when the scribes and the Pharisees have approached him and they've called him out and they've attributed his healings and his works to Beelzebul and to, to Satan, but Jesus was interested in the disciples' public perception and understanding of the general population. And all the answers they share are good guesses, as each answer has a strong connection with the Messiah. Some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we know, was beheaded by Herod Antipas. And we learned earlier in Mark, back in Mark 6, that Herod believed that Jesus was John the Baptist reborn, according to Mark 6.14. And so there are other people, just like Herod, probably the Herodians, who think that Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead. Others say Elijah. James Edwards writes, No Old Testament personality 
held such fascination for first century Judaism as Elijah. The reason lay not in his deeds for the accomplishments of other Old Testament figures, Abraham, Moses, David, even Joshua, exceeded Elijah's. The reason lay in the report that Elijah had been taken bodily to heaven in 2 Kings 2.11, where he was believed to oversee the deeds of mortals to comfort the faithful and help the needy, and above all, to return as forerunner of the great and terrible day of the Lord, according to Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5 and 6. End quote. So when the people saw Jesus doing all those, ministering to the people, the needs, right? And then there were even aspects where the Lord would bring judgment to, to bear. And we, we see this more in the second half of the Gospels than we do in the first half. But, of course, they think that Elijah's realistic option. Maybe, maybe it's Elijah, Still others thought that Jesus was one of the prophets. Question for you. Was Jesus a prophet? Yes, he was, right? He wasn't just a prophet, he's the, he's the great prophet. He's prophet, priest, and king. And he wasn't just a, a priest, he was the, he's the great high priest. He's not just a temporal king. He's the great eternal king. So when they are saying a prophet, to some degree they're on the right track. But they're, they're, they're not seeing everything clearly. In fact, I could say it uh, uh, and use a description in another way so perhaps you might make a significant connection. Their vision is a little blurry. Track them with me? What does that remind you of? When Jesus just healed the blind man, right? When he touched him in the very first stage of that miracle. Look again at verse 23, since it's so close. It says, Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Verse 24. And he looked up and said, I see men. For I see them like trees walking around. This serves as a symbolic reflection of what the people saw when they saw Jesus. They, they saw men. Some saw John the Baptist. Some, Elijah. Still others. One of the prophets. Their vision isn't clear. They don't see Christ. They don't see the Messiah. And it doesn't help to come close, right, to seeing who Jesus is. We must see him clearly. You have to get Jesus right. You have to see him clearly for who he is. Our eternal communion with God or our eternal separation from God hangs in the balance. 
how a person lives their life and where a person spends eternity depends on confessing Christ clearly, not on what they believe to be true about public perception. Don't be fooled by public perception. We continue to see the tragic consequences of public perception in our day, don't we? I mean, we see it. In general, if you'd ask unbelievers what they believe to be true about Jesus, Jesus was a good guy. From what they know, he's a good person. He's a good rabbi. In fact, if you talk to other religions, they'll even recognize that Jesus was a prophet who had tremendous influence. They see the man, but they miss the Messiah. And by the way, this is a very important time for Jesus and the disciples. Why? Because we talked about this. This is a transition for him from his, his public ministry to now his private ministry where he's, he's getting very close to the cross. He's within a year uh, time frame, less than 12 months of going to the, the cross. And so he needs to make sure that the disciples know who he is. It would be unwise for the Lord Jesus Christ to move forward if there's any question about who he is. And their clear confession of Christ, where we see, serves as an example for the New Testament church. And this brings us to the second vital insight so that you and I confess Christ clearly. The first vital insight is don't be fooled by public perception. The second is this, and it's in your notes. Confirm your faith with a clear confession. And here we're going to look at the Lord's poignant question, followed by the disciples' personal confession. Let's continue with the Lord's poignant question. Look at the beginning of verse 29. And he continued by asking them, But who do you say that I am? Poignant. Straight to the heart. I asked you about other people. I'm turning. My focus is on you. And let me just say this so that we we, we see it clearly as well. The, the, The question is for you, my friend, and for me as well. It's direct. It's purposed. It's personal. Straight to the heart. But who do you say that I am? I was thinking about this over the course of our lives, just how we're asked a number of different questions over the course of our life. You know, most of them are pretty routine, uh, basic questions, don't really have a whole lot of significance. You know, what do you want for breakfast this morning? What are you going to wear? What do you want to watch on TV? You know, what, what are your weekend plans? They just, there's, there's no impact or a long-term impact from questions like that on our lives. But if we go to the opposite end of the spectrum, there's some questions that we can be asked that are pretty high up there. Aren't there? Pretty significant ones. Will you marry me? There's one. You don't have to answer that, by the way. I'm, I'm already married. Okay? No. But there, there, there's questions that, that we get asked that, that have tremendous 
tremendous implications. Doctor, how long do I have? I, you, you, you've diagnosed, what's my prognosis I, with my terminal disease? Pretty significant, isn't it? There are questions with immediate and long-term ramifications. And the question that Jesus asks here, who do you say that I am? It's one of those questions. In fact, it could be argued that no other question has greater significance than that question alone, found right here in verse 29 and the other two parallel gospel accounts in the Synoptic Gospels. Some theologians have even referred to it as the ultimate question because of the eternal implications. Edwards writes again, the question requires the disciples to form and express their own judgment about Jesus rather than merely seconding the views of others. They must separate themselves from the majority opinion and risk a personal confession. Faith expresses itself in public confession of Jesus, and neither faith nor confession is a proxy vote. End quote. What is Edwards ultimately saying? No one can answer for you. No one can stand in as your paroxy. That's what that word means, to, to, to stand in your place. No one can answer it for you. And it brings us to our second sub-point in the heart of this passage, the disciples' personal confession. Look at the middle of verse 29. Here, Peter serves as a spokesman. We've talked about this. I've alluded to it, I think, in earlier sermons uh, for the disciples. And he answers the Lord's question by saying, you are the Christ. And in Luke's account, he says, you are the Christ of God. And then we see an even uh, more expanded response in Matthew's account where he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter provides the ultimate answer to the ultimate question with his response. The Christ, Christos in the Greek. It's equated with Messiah in Hebrew. It is Peter and the apostles recognizing Jesus as the anointed one, the promised one of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus Christ, creator. Jesus Christ, all supreme authority. Jesus Christ, judge. Jesus Christ, Isaiah 9, 6. Wonderful counselor, almighty God, prince of peace. Christ and Messiah, by the way, can be used interchangeably. And I think that we use Christ and Messiah interchangeably. And Peter's response is basically saying, you are the fulfillment of everything messianic that we see in the scriptures. And I taught the parallel passage. Um, I think uh, the, the, the first sermon that I ever preached when we were in this building was the ultimate Q&A. And it was on Matthew 16. Those that were here might, might remember. Um, I remember just even in the course of my study, I was like, oh, wow, I preached 
the, the, the parallel account already. What were they saying? You are the chosen one of God. Question for you. How were uh, how was Peter and were the disciples enabled to confess Christ so clearly? Well, to understand this correctly, we need to see the progressive grace and the healing work of God. Recall our blind man being healed in stages right before this. In the first stage, he was only able to see men, right? And we, we talked about this already. This, this reflects the fact of what some people only saw. Some only saw John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. We said this was reflective of the people only seeing Jesus as a man. But what happens when Jesus is touched in the second, the second time? Look at verse 25. It says, Then again Jesus laid his hands on his eyes, and the man looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And there it is. And I came across a description of the, the blind man being healed uh, by J.C. Ryle. And it's a fairly long quote. And so I asked our slides team if they could go ahead and put it up on the PowerPoint for us so that we could follow along. Paul, if you got that for us, we can bring that up. And I want to share it with you because it helps us to see a progression that I think is, is very valuable for us, okay? Follow along as I read. Let us see then in this gradual restoration of sight, and he's talking about the blind man, a vivid illustration of the manner in which the Spirit frequently works in the conversion of souls. We are all naturally blind and ignorant in the matters which concern our souls. Conversion is an illumination a change from darkness to light, from blindness to seeing the kingdom of God. Yet few converted people see things distinctly at first. The nature and proportion of doctrines, practices, and ordinances of the gospel are dimly seen by them and imperfectly understood. They are like the man before us who at first saw men as trees walking, their vision is dazzled and unaccustomed to the new world in which they have been introduced. It is not until the work of the Spirit has become deeper and their experience been somewhat matured that they see all things clearly and give to each part of religion its proper place. This is the history of thousands of God's children. End quote. I don't know if that strikes a chord with some of you, but you know, th th there's people who share their testimonies and sometimes there are those people who said, yep, they, they, they recall the day that they, the, the gospel was unveiled, that they came to saving faith, they, they wrote it down, they have a date in their Bible, they'll even open up and they remember it like no other, right? It was, it was, it was, it was unreal. And then you have people who honestly, and I, I'm one of those people I honestly can't tell you specifically what day that my heart was converted. I can't. All I can tell you is that God took me to Alaska on top of the world, took me away from all of my partying friends and 
all the things of this world that were tugging at my heart and, and brought me to Muldoon Baptist Church on Muldoon Road in Anchorage, and it was there where I began to hear the gospel faithfully preached, and, and I saw these people with so much joy singing week after week about their salvation and their redemption and how God had mercy on them and how excited they were to spend an eternity with them. And I was trying to figure it out. And it was over the course of the time as, as God just continued to preach the gospel and I got connected with a, another pastor and, and started to attend his church. And he was, he was a former athlete, so we, we shared that background. And he, he, it's athletic thing, I think. I just was drawn to that and um, just a team player and wanted to learn from him. And I do remember a point in time where he cross-referenced the scripture in Ephesians 2.8 that says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. And that, that to me was just like, wow, it's, it's completely by grace. It's, it's not about me going to church. It's not about the fact that I've been raised Roman Catholic. It's not about the fact that I've gone and, and, and done good things, right? It's by grace. But even in that situation, as it related to my full understanding of repentance, right, and turning from unbelief, I don't even know if it happened that day. I can't tell you. And I'm in good company. John MacArthur says he can't remember it either. And he describes it this way. He says, I can't remember the day that I was born physically either, but I can tell you this much, I'm alive. Amen. And that's, and that's it. And that might be your experience or that might be the experience that somebody else goes through when, when they come to saving faith. Or we just don't know, right? The, the progression. Or sometimes people recognize truths about God before God fully reveals himself for who that he is, the Messiah. Elder from... Um, our previous ministry in North Carolina just surprised me in the office this week, showed up two in the afternoon on Tuesday, and um, he was with his brother out here on a business trip. His brother was in the church for years, and then he stopped going to church, and then he was sharing with me how excited he was that his brother was now back at the church. And he, he shared with him just something recently when they're having conversations that you know, um, in the last, one of the last sermons that was preached at their church, the, the, the emphasis that Jesus was God. And he said, I just, he said, I don't know why, but I just never really grasped that reality. And that was serving as a catalyst for his heart to want to pursue the Lord even more. We just, sometimes we see things clearly. And then sometimes, if we're honest, right, they're, they're, they're a little bit blurry. It is the work of God. We know that, amen? Right? Well, that, that's not subject to any debate. We know that in the parallel account in Matthew 16, after Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus responds to him. What's he say right after that? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father who is in heaven. That's, that's who revealed it to you. And oh, how this should stir our hearts to praise and worship. 
those of us who recognize and who have clearly confessed Jesus as Messiah, how that should turn our affection and let us know that really, you know, we, we, we can't take credit. We can't own it, right? It's God's. He did the work. It's our privilege, but it's his love. What a divine work. It's powerful. And we sing about it. I mean, just even the worship songs. So blessed, just even by the, and can it be? And can it be? Can it be? But it is. But it is. And Mark's account doesn't include what Matthew's does for us when it helps us see that Peter's clear confession is going to lay a foundation for the New Testament church. And that confession is what the church is going to be built on. According to Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and he's speaking clearly of Peter's confession of Christ. And there are some who will try to argue that. Predominantly, the Roman Catholic Church who uses it as a proof text for the, 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 the papacy for there to be a pope. But it's the confession. That is the rock. It is, it is clear. It is the unveiling. It is the gift of sight. That is the rock. It is seeing him as Messiah. It is seeing him as the chosen one. It is seeing him as the way. It's seeing him as the only other way. The only way, excuse me. There is no other way. Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name given to us among, uh, among men by which we can be saved. The infamous verse of John 4.6. He's the way, the truth, the life. There is no other way to the Father except through the Messiah. I also think that there's another perspective for us here as we read that J.C. Ryle quote. Contrary to what we think, the effectual work of the gospel is sometimes gradual and progressive. It's not always instantaneous and perfectly clear. And let that encourage you because sometimes, you know, we have family members and loved ones and we cling to a hope that maybe they've made a profession, but honestly, sometimes we see fruit, sometimes we don't. Anyone been there, right? You, or you have those coworkers, you see that. Right? And, 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 and this is where we entrust him to the Lord. And this is what turns us and makes us become more prayerful on their behalf. This also allows us to be used by the Lord to continue to witness to them and point to the truth and to live and share a testimony of a gospel of grace. That it's not us. It can never be us. And just think about this for a moment. How long it's been, and it's been uh, months at this point, a couple years, that the disciples have been with the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. That they, they finally come to a place where there's a clear confession. Absolutely clear and this can help us to persevere, can it not? It helps us to persevere in our evangelism. It helps us to persevere in our prayerfulness. That it isn't sometimes, it's not going to be instantaneous. 
David Beakley was sharing with the men yesterday when he was talking about even our spiritual growth after we're saved. He said there's no way to microwave a man. <laughs> he said it's usually growth in a Petri dish of life. That's it. It's, it's slow and it's steady and it's happening, right? And sometimes we look at our spouse or they look at us or we look at our kids or we look at someone else and we're just like, gosh, I wish they would speed it up a little bit. Can, can we get them in the spiritual microwave? You know what I'm saying? Can we move them along just a little, you know, on high? <laughs> on high and on high, okay? Seriously, it's like, come on, let's, let's get it going, right? But we can't, right? The Lord's going to do his work, right? But the, the, the point and the thing that we want to take away is that a clear confession of Christ is important. It is, it is. In fact, you know, the one thing that stood out to me about, because there's always this unique thing that's happening when we talk about divine sovereignty and man's responsibility, and, and, and it's, there's really, it's very difficult to rec reconcile those two things. But I think that even after the man um, was touched the second time, do you notice what it says? That he looked intently, Right? He looked intently. And what did he see? He saw Christ. He saw clearly. And there is no casual way for a person to confess Christ. Yeah, I believe Jesus. I want to go to heaven. Can't happen that way. It doesn't work that way. Jesus, God's word reminds us that when we seek him, right? We will find him. When we knock, he will answer. But there's, there's, we seek with all of our heart, right? It's not with casual indifference. The vital insight that we need to see here and the one that the Lord wants to confirm is that our faith is marked with a clear confession of Christ. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Have you understood the implications for your own soul in answering that question? Who do you say that he is? Could be that you're here today and it's the very first time that you're even interacting with that question. I don't know that I've ever really said anything about him. Would you consider his question? Would you consider his call from this passage? That you need to make a clear confession. That if you're willing to look to him, he will give you eyes to see who he is. But it's not done casually, and it's not done without cost. In fact, in the very next passage that we're going to study right after this, you can look down. Jesus is going to share with Peter and the disciples about the fact that it's going to cost him greatly, that he's going to go, and that he's going to be confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees, and that he's going to be put to death, and it's going to cost him his life. And then in the very next passage, right after that, he says that if you want to come after me, what? You have to deny yourself. It comes at a cost. Well, at the beginning of the message, 
I used that illustration and the story of the man about the, the, the fire that was burning around him out of control. A fire that was uncontainable, that would consume those in its path if they didn't respond to the officials' warnings that the destruction that was heading their way and that they needed to respond. And the man that I saw interviewed in that, I'll never forget that image. I will never forget that image. He was so attached to his home. He was so attached to the things of this world that he couldn't let it go. He could not let it go. He was unwilling to leave it behind and he was putting his entire life in jeopardy. And this provides a good spiritual illustration for us, does it not? God's judgment and wrath is coming to this world. It is going to be poured out. It is going to be a consuming fire. And like the police officers and the fire officials who were encouraging everyone to evacuate, Christians, us, you and I, we have the message of salvation this world so desperately needs to, to, to escape God's judgment. Jesus Christ will rescue all those who trust in him completely. And the only way to get rescued is if you confess Christ clearly. Don't be fooled by public perception. Many continue to only see the man when they consider who Jesus Christ is, but they miss the Messiah. May we be used by the Lord as we pray, as we evangelize, as we pursue them with truth and, and, truth and hope that one day that their faith, like ours, will be confirmed with a clear confession, an absolute, crystal clear confession of Christ. Amen? Amen, church? And we get to celebrate communion next, at the beginning of, of next hour. Well, our time is up. Please join me as I pray. Our Father in heaven,